Well, good morning, faith community. For those I haven't had a chance to meet uh, before, um, you're in for a treat this morning because you get to enjoy the superpower that I learned about when I was in grad school taking a preaching class, and my preaching instructor stood up and he said, Mr. Slomka, do you know that you have dynamic monotone? And so (laughs) I've been operating out of that superpower ever since. And so it's gotten more nasal over the years, but hopefully it's still dynamic and it's monotone. Uh, I'm going to tie into the series that the pastors, uh, Vincent and Larissa, have been um, leading us through this summer on the questioning God. Questions are interesting. I think in our culture there's universal questions. I wrote down a few on my way in this morning. Um, One is probably what you said this morning, how are you? That's a universal question. When you're a little kid, it's, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Uh, For those of us who meet uh, someone who's little or smaller or younger than us, uh, who hasn't yet um, decided that question, we like to ask that question. Another one is, when you're pregnant, do you want a boy or a girl? As if that's going to make a difference, (laughs) especially when it's the first one. Um, Or a fourth question is, when you're a parent and you have this creature running around your house doing unusual things or things that are outside of the box, it's the other universal question is, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. What entered your mind? And so uh, there's, uh, those, those questions might be you know, unique to Western first world countries, but you find them everywhere. Um, I've been doing Duolingo. I decided that I finally wanted to learn Spanish. And so uh, since a recent trip to Spain, uh, when I was there, I would talk to people and and it was like, you know, it's ridiculous. We have Spanish all around us and I haven't learned this language at all. So I'm on a seven, I'm on my 72 day streak on Duolingo. I'm trying to learn Spanish, and it's amazing that you think you're doing so good, and then you have an opportunity to use it, and it's like mind freeze. Uh, but one of the things is, is that as I go through Duolingo, it's like those questions are there. Okay, so like, como esta usted? How are you, right? Uh, so, and, and then with little Eddie on one of the uh, dialogue things, it was, it's what are you thinking? And so you, you kind of see that. There are questions that, at least in Western civilization, they, they seem to be everywhere. Uh, but there are questions that lie maybe under those questions or over those questions that uh, are much more primal. Uh, they're, they're, they, they strike at who we are. And God has a way of bringing that out of us. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at what I'm calling four primal questions uh, that God asks and still asks of us today. So if you have a Bible with you uh, in book form and digital form, whatever, I'm going to be, or you can look at it on the screen, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Question number one. 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, question number two, who told you you were naked? Question number three, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, gotta love it, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, question number four, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. So, Father, as we turn our attention to, these, um, to this scripture this morning, we pray that um, this would be a time and opportunity for you to pastor us, that when we leave this place and we relate the events of our weekend uh, to friends, co-workers, family, whatever, that we would not simply say we went to church, but we, we could say that we heard your voice and therefore you pastored us. Whether it was in the lyrics of the songs we sang and how we were led in worship, whether it was in the prayers, whether it was in the words of Awatif, or whether it's in this word that we're going to be looking at, we would pray in Jesus' name the promise that you spoke when you said that your sheep would recognize your voice. So we pray in Jesus' name that there be the tangible weight and presence of your Holy Spirit amongst us this morning. Pressing it upon us, pressing upon our mind, pressing upon our heart, that we would allow you to ask these questions of us and perhaps you would course correct some orientations and decisions and perspectives that we have that are continuing the big lie in our lives. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So four questions. The first, where are you? This is a question of sentience. Okay. Where are you? It's a question of what do you know? How do you know it? Your capacity to differentiate between you and your surroundings. Uh, sentience is not merely your capacity to suffer. Okay? Sentience involves your awareness that, that you have a life that's different from other people's lives. Now, I'm a total dog junkie. My heart belongs to Carol and Murphy. When I leave the house on a trip, Carol knows how long I'm going to be gone for. But for Murphy, it's just, he's gone. And the way he looks at me, it's, it's just like, I don't get that same look from Carol. It, it might, be, <laughs> might, might be a sense of relief, but, but with Murphy, it's just like this longing, like, 
probably I'm projecting ego into it, but it's like you look into his eyes and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to see you again. And he's a rescue dog, so we read into that that you know he was abandoned earlier and stuff. And so it's the kind of thing where when I go on a trip, I look, I have pictures of Carol and, and my kids, uh, but, but when I go on a trip, I can't look at Murphy <laughs> because those eyes undo me. And so, but, but Murphy doesn't have a lot of sentience. He can experience pain and comfort and doing some reading on dogs, they can, they can discern emotion, but like they don't discern time as we discern time. They don't discern consequence in, in a theoretical or speculative way. Uh, in, in this, they don't rehearse things, I guess. You ever rehearse decisions where you think, you know, if I do this, then maybe that person's gonna say this, or I'm gonna do, and so you kind of insulate yourself by what you anticipate. Dogs don't do that. Dogs live in real time. Uh, they, they live in the moment. Uh, they eat in the moment. They smell in the moment. They walk in the moment. Uh, they, but human beings, creatures called humans, we have the capacity to discern place, time, space, awareness, and so when God comes, and it's interesting that the writer of Genesis appears to be referencing that this might have been a regular routine for God, that in the cool of the day, God would walk in the garden, and so Adam and Eve could anticipate. It's kind of like when you've done something wrong as a child, my parents, my mom used to say, just you wait till your dad gets home, okay? You're on clock time now. You're, you can kind of get on with your day, but as it gets closer to 6.15, 6.30, when dad is going to come through those doors and get that report, you start to kind of have this sense of dread. If you know you've really crossed the line, you're busying yourself, you're trying to hide, you're, you're wishing you could have been across the street, but now you're going to be at the house. It appears that maybe in the narrative of this saga that that Adam and Eve know when God is showing up. And so they, they hear him. I can remember as a kid, just even thinking about it, that I could hear the car pulling up. And then it's tick, tick, tick. I can hear the door close, tick, tick. I can hear him open the door in the house, tick, tick. I mean, it's just your anticipation. So, so it is that um, this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, they, they hide. They hide. And God has to ask them, where are you? Because let's face it, if things are good at home, and, and you feel good about your mom and dad and you think they feel good about you, you're at the door. Our dog is at the door. If he's not, something's wrong. And so it is that God asked this question of sentience. Where are you? That's a great summer question. 
Sometimes it's a great time to have a book list, a watch list, a music list. The other day I was looking up to see what are the upcoming shows at the Rady Shell downtown because I kind of start to put together my music list that I want to listen to over the summer. And I saw that on October 13th, uh, Nickel Creek, which is one of my favorite bands, and they're San Diego-based, uh, was playing at the Shell. And then I thought, oh, no, I, I've got meetings that night, and I can't get out of it. And then I thought, wait, if Nickel Creek's playing the Shell, they must have a new album out. And so for the first time in nine years, uh, Nickel Creek has come back together, have a new album out. So when I was um, flying last weekend, I was on the plane listening to this new album, which for me is just like this explosion of acoustic artistry. But that's what I used to always like to do, is have these artists and albums that I like to kind of check in on and listen to uh, over the course of summer, books set aside and I was hoping to get to. Summer's a great time to kind of recalibrate, resync, level set. So this question along the ones that, that follow are great opportunity. What's your awareness? What's going on in your surroundings? How, how are you feeling? Quote the old Southwest ad, want to get away? Are you hiding from God? Are you keeping something back from him? Are you thinking about yourself? Where are you as you differentiate yourself, your life, from the relationships that you're in? Because we can hide in our relationships. We can hide in our schedules. We can hide in our busyness. Where are you? Because God still comes in the cool of the day in search of us. Is our posture one that we're already there waiting and welcoming? Or is there something about his presence that creates fear, dread, withdrawal, shame? Next question he asks us is, who told you you were naked? This is a question of conscience. What's going on within us? That it's that moral compass within us. And the irony here is no one did. The serpent didn't tell them they were naked. We did. In fact, in the text, Eve doesn't tell them. The awareness of their nakedness overtook them because they have new reference points in their life. New reference points that are speaking in to their soul. And what we reference influences how we think about ourselves and others. 
In this case, no one told them they were naked. But now there's a lie in their lives. Because nakedness here doesn't really refer to the state of their body. It refers to the state of their conscience and what that reference is producing within them. And what it's producing within them is this deep shame vulnerability, exposure. When things are completely open, when you feel completely secure and safe, nakedness is irrelevant. I remember, this might be... Carol told me afterwards that this was TMI, um, but, but, but I remember when, when we were first married, there was a couple in our lives um, that their names were Keith and Sarah, and they made this observation about married, marriage. You know you're married when one of you is sitting on the toilet next to the sink where you're brushing your teeth and you're having a conversation and you're not even aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't take that long. <laughs> or it's a, it's a child running around the house, what do we call it, in their birthday suit. One of our daughters is in musical theater and, and one of my favorite memories is her going from the bathtub, completely butt naked, putting on a little pair of tap shoes, getting a, a, a dancing cane, one of those black canes, and putting on a top hat and going into our narrow foyer that had a good echo because of the w narrow walls and the tile floor and the low ceiling, and just start dancing, tapping the cane with her tap shoes, completely oblivious. And I wish I could take a picture, but in the back of my mind it's like, in those, that was the days of film, so it's, it's like this gets developed at the lab, Mark goes to jail, and, <laughs> and uh, all, all because... But, but that's what being unashamed looks like. Because the reference points are all safe. They're all safe. Affirming, holistic, For those of us who have had kids, you can't save them from the moment they go to school, preschool, kindergarten, and they're wearing their favorite clothes, and they're made fun of. You, you want to save them from that, you want to protect them from it. But you know what? That's life outside the garden. Yeah. And now they're body shamed. They could be too skinny. They could be too large. They can wear the wrong clothes. Heck, we had a daughter that went to a, to a middle school that had uniforms 
And you think about the great thing about uniforms is what's to ridicule, right? Everybody's wearing the same thing. She got ridiculed for her socks. Because this is the area, you, you take sentience and you combine it with conscience. And there's self-awareness that overtakes us. And they're lies. They're lies. And so at different stages in our lives, we value or we esteem certain things. That kid that was a nerd that you mocked when you were growing up is probably multimillionaire coder right now. That person that you thought was cool, influential, a leader, not so much now. Because it's all about our reference points. And so when God walks through the garden and he says, where are you? The next question he says, who told you you were naked? It's, it's a question of conscience. What's, what's infecting your conscience in how you think about yourself, how you think about others, how you differentiate yourself one from another? What are you doing out of that conscience to cover up? I sometimes wonder, how would we dress if we really thought we wouldn't be judged by our dress? Because clothes, fashion, are still the loincloths of the scriptures. We dress to fit in. We dress to look good. Because we've lost our capacity to see good. So we look at externals. As a pastor, I, I struggle with it all the time. That, that story of the emperor's new clothes, do you know the story? The emperor was looking for new clothes. They... They can't figure out anything, and they tell me he's got wonderful clothes. And anyway, anyways, uh, I, I sometimes think about, man, if they only knew me, for me, he'd be out of here. I had this dream once when, when I was invited to. Caroline used to live in England and minister over there, and and there were men that were my signature example of what I would aspire to be, both as a man, as a Christian man, as a pastor, a leader. And I had this dream one night that caused me to wake up in sweats the night before I was going to speak. And it was, I was speaking, and these men were in the front row, and, and they all were raised and mentored by a man who told them to carry one of those little flip notebooks with them. 
And when the flip notebook came out, they were taking notes. And so the minute I start talking with my superpower, dynamic monotone, the notebook comes out and they start. <laughs> and so as they start to do this, I start breaking out in a cold sweat. You know, that one that kind of starts at the back of your neck and starts coming around and then moves down your body and you start beating up with sweat on your forehead. And, and as I'm speaking, I, it's like, oh my gosh. And so. I take off my coat. That was in the days that you wear coats and ties or clerical collars. And, and I take off the coat, and then they're still. <sighs> so then I'm taking off my, my shirt, and I'm down to my undershirt. And then I'm, I'm starting to get this like panic attack. And so I start actually taking off my trousers. And at that point, I faint. <laughs> and as I look up on the floor, the, these four men are looking over me like this, and with kind of great British understatement, they go, ugh. <laughs> and they just walk away. It's like, I felt, in this dream, I felt so exposed. Felt so naked. When COVID hit and pastors Larissa and Vince asked me to make a video this was the first time in my life I have ever had to make a video consciously. And so I set up in our house and I set things up. I put some wine bottles on the kitchen counter so I had a congregation to preach to. The passage was turning water into wine, so I thought that was appropriate. And I stood next to our TV and I was going to use that like we use the screens here in church. And I started to speak, and 15 seconds, 20 seconds into it, it was like I heard this voice say, cut! <laughs> and every, so I start again, and it was like, cut, no, no, do it again. It, it took like three hours to record a 20-minute message. And then I went upstairs, put the card into the computer to edit the video, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Number one, I had to look at myself. Now we look at ourselves every day in the mirror, right? And somehow we manage to get by. And if it's a good day, it's even like, I'm not looking too bad today. This, this, this will work. But there is something about seeing yourself in a photograph or in a video where your brain doesn't get to play the same games it does in front of the mirror. And, and I would love to see a scientific study on how and why that is. But now I'm having to edit myself. And it's bad enough having to hear myself. I'm sorry. But to see myself, I'm even more sorry. It, it was like the longer this went on, and then, of course, it's the editing. So my arm's here. My arm's there. My arm's up. My head's there. Next shot, it's over here. It's like by the end of it, I was so undone, I sent it on to them, and it was like, if this is my experience, I bet there's a lot of pastors who are just going to crash until we make our peace and feel secure and no longer feel naked in front of the camera. Because we have these reference points that speak into our conscience that is in sync with our sentience, and so you have this 
this constant moving and shifting and thinking and differentiating and comparing because that's, that's how we find our moral center is in balancing all of this. But the trouble is, is that there's lies that become our fundamental reference point, which is why we need the scriptures, because they're an external word of truth that gives us understanding for how God designed us to differentiate ourselves and to give us a constant reference point, which contrary to cultural opinion is not old, antiquated, irrelevant. It's constant, yet agile, ever adapting, to give us grounding for how to see ourselves, our life, our space, our world around us, so we need not feel naked and ashamed. Third question, did you eat what I told you not to? Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the observation that only he or she who believes is obedient and only he or she who is obedient believes. This is a question of obedience. And it's interesting to me that I feel like I've seen a trend in the last 10, 15 years that we have these discussions of faith that are disconnected from the call to obedience. Now, the, the trouble with that is, is that when I do hear it, it's generally put in terms of hierarchical conversations. And so there are examples like, you obey because it's like you're in the military and you have officers above you and you don't get to think for yourself, you just obey. Or it's hierarchical. In organizational structures, you have the org chart and you have to obey the person who's above you in the org chart. While this is all true, it's completely insufficient from a Christian point of view because our obedience is not organizationally driven or rank-driven, it's relationally inspired. And so it is the question, did you eat what I, what I told you not to eat? The relationship's been breached. And so it is that Jesus later on would say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't love me, you won't keep my commandments. That's why, as followers of Jesus Christ, you can't expect someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to live like a believer. Listen, we have hard enough time doing that. Come on, let's be honest. Last time I checked, it's not easy for us. And then you want to put that on someone who doesn't share our faith? Come on. Obedience is out of relationship. It's out of an understanding that it's out of relationship with him. In fact, it's interesting that when Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, 
they chose words for obedience that are very different than the word that the New Testament writers used when they chose to use the word obedience. The word obedience in the New Testament uh, has this understanding of to hear or to listen under. It's it's a compound word that has two roots, but it's really the understanding of, of a relational submission is what drives us. It's not the rank of Jesus' lordship, although he could certainly assert it. Listen, when you're, the, when you're the God who creates the heavens and earth, who forms all creatures, you can certainly demand obedience. But instead, what God is looking for is a relational submission that is driven, inspired, informed, released by the relationship. And so, Carol doesn't have to order me to be faithful. It's internally driven. It's internally driven by our marriage, by my love for her, her love for me. I don't need that commandment. Maybe, Mark, can you blow the backyard? I need that commandment. (laughs) But on the things that are life-defining, our sentience, our conscience, our obedience is all driven relationally. And finally, this question, what is this that you have done? It's a question of consequence. Have you heard the term original sin? Have you heard or the, the other jargon word, the fall, referring to the sin in the garden as the fall of man or the fall of humanity? I want to tell you, there was no fall. It was a jump. It was no fall, it was a jump. We didn't trip. We didn't slip and fall. We jumped. We jumped. And it's not original sin, it's the originality of sin. This is where the environment that every baby is born into originates. This capacity for shame and ecstasy, truth and lie, darkness and light, unity and polarization, beauty and ugliness, sacrifice and selflessness, selfishness, This is its point of origin. This is ground zero. This is the space, the time in which 
these first creatures created by God called humans decided to jump. And it seems so inconsequential, but the ripple effect has been universal. It's kind of like when you're, when you're in the mountains somewhere and, it, and you're driving and it says 4% grade ahead, okay? meaning that the angle of ascent is 4%. And I remember as a kid growing up and you learn how to use a protractor and you look at 4% and you go, 4%. That's nothing until you just keep projecting that. Launch a spaceship to the moon. If it's, if it's off by less than 1.1 tenth of 1% over that 220,000 mile journey, whatever it is, it misses the moon altogether. The ripple effect from this point of origin has disastrous consequences for humanity. And so these questions, where are you? Question of sentience. Who told you? What are your reference points in life? Dear ones, the scriptures are the most sound reference point we can have. The, the word of God incarnate through Christ revealed in these words. Question of conscience. Did you eat from the tree? Question of obedience. And then what is this that you've done, the consequence? Don't be afraid to let these four primal questions penetrate your life. Because the good news is there's freedom, grace, and relationship on the other end of it. A 19th century Bible scholar named Marcus Dodds made this observation, and it's on the screen as well. It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment for sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger, and he had to learn that sin could be covered, not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, and that would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without the expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing from the first sin to the last. The track of the sinner is marked with blood. Once we have sinned, we cannot get, regain permanent peace of conscience, save through the pain and, not this, and this not only pain of our own. 
The first hint of this was given as soon as conscience was aroused in man. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil, and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. The same lesson has been written on millions of consciousness since then. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves disturbance and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God, and that we cannot rise above its consequences save by the intervention of God himself by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. For the chief point is that it is God who relieves man's shame. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 makes this statement, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. It's like, if this is me, I've used this illustration many times before, if this is me, and this is the burden of my sin, and this is Jesus, what Paul is saying is, is that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Who are you? Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? What is this that you've done or are doing? These will paralyze you relationally, spiritually, emotionally until we surrender relationally to the one who's willing to take our sin upon themselves that we might be be restored in that relationship and to be able to regain some freedom that is just a down payment on the liberation that will be ours forever in Christ. So Father, you're asking us questions this morning. And what's profound about them is we can't answer for someone else. They're existential, they're focused, they're precise, they're aimed at us personally, individually. And how we answer them has great consequences for the people that are dearest to us as well as for the community that we live in and are called to be a light towards. And so it is this morning. May the remainder of this summer be a chance to allow you to ask us these questions and to realize we can't save ourselves. We'll snatch at leaves. But in Jesus, you have paid a price that can cover us for a lifetime. Restore our relationship with you. Restore, revive, give life to our relationship with others. And so it is, if it's for the first time or the 10th or 100th or 1,000th time, 
we come to you that you might receive us and release us that our obedience will not be out of some vain legalism that serves our pride and continues our nakedness but it would represent a holy and sacred submission that is life-giving in Jesus' name. Amen.